Last week we saw Solomon's rise and his fall. He's taking over the throne from his father, David. Solomon had an amazing encounter with God there at Gibeon. He had a great vision, and the Lord said, showed up and said, Solomon, just name it. Whatever you want, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it to you. And Solomon uh, knew enough to know that he didn't know enough, and he said, God, I need wisdom. If I'm going to be the king that my dad wants me to be, that you want me to be, I need wisdom. And so God was so pleased with his request that not for riches or you know, uh, extended life, that, that he gave Solomon abundant wisdom, and he gave him the stuff he didn't ask for. He gave him wealth, and he, and he gave him fame. And it was under Solomon's rule that Israel grew into a world power. But Solomon forgot the aim of wisdom as the transformation of character. That wisdom is more than just knowledge. It's got to be applied. At some point in Solomon's life, he stopped applying the wisdom of God to his own person, and he ended up marrying hundreds of women, 700 to be exact. And the Bible says that those women turned his heart from God. Solomon began to worship little g gods. And the one true God found it as a big offense. God would give the kingdom to one of Solomon's subordinates instead of Solomon's son. Now, for the sake of David, because David was a man after God's own heart, God is going to keep his promise. There will still be a descendant of Solomon that will be king over Judah. But the 11 other tribes are going to go to another one, a subordinate, somebody that's not of that line. And it's going to be difficult. It's going to be a difficult pill to swallow. And so when Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam has a chance. The people come to Rehoboam and they say, hey, I know that you thought your dad was awesome, and he really was, and he did great things for the country, but we're tired, and we're taxed out, and, and we don't want to build anything else ever again. They're just worn out people. And there in that moment, Rehoboam has, has a chance. And so he seeks counsel, and he says, I, I don't know what to do. These people are telling me that we're taxing them too much. They're telling me they're tired of these great building projects. I'm not sure what to do. And, and, and he gets advice from... Uh, his counselors, but what he hears, he doesn't like. And so he turns to his friends. Instead of lightening the load, as his ed royal advisors uh, recommended, he actually listens to his young friends, and he decides to increase it, to make it harder than even his father's rule would be. When the people heard this threat, this is what they cried out. This is 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 16 and 17. It's page 194. And 195 of your story, it says, when all of Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, what share do we have in David? What, what part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel, look after your own house, David. So the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over them. The rest of the story deals with the lasting consequences of what becomes this division. The one kingdom is now split into two territories. The southern kingdom, just the tribe of Judah, will be ruled by Rehoboam. The other 11 will be ruled by somebody that was a subordinate to Solomon. His name is Jeroboam. And the rest of the story deals with this uh, terrible division and the disasters that follow uh, these two men because their sons are every bit as poor rulers as they are. Uh, 
Jeroboam in fear that the people under his rule, that's 11 tribes, when they returned to Jerusalem would, uh, to worship God, would, would fall back under the authority of Rehoboam, decides, I don't want that. And so he, he, he actually makes a, a temple and he builds for himself, he crafts, get this, two calves, two golden calves, because we haven't learned our lesson yet. One was bad enough, I'm going to make two. And it becomes a source of idol worship. Rehoboam's not much better. He allows people in his territory to worship idols as well. Both of these guys are going to be followed by sons who fail just as spectacularly as their fathers do. And the worst of the bunch, perhaps, will be a power couple that reigns over the northern kingdom. His name is Ahab and hers is Jezebel. And we will study them when we come back in January. So, Question is, what do we learn from this difficult time? Now, if you read, this is, this, this is one of the toughest times in the life of Israel. We feel like we've been saying that over and over and over, but it really is. Israel has become a world power, and now the kingdom's going to be torn in two. This is tough. What do we learn during this um, life in the history of Israel? Well, first, I want to talk to you about the upper story. Okay, here's what we learn in the upper story. One, God always keeps his promises. God, God promised, he made a promise to David. He said, you know, listen, this is how it's going to be. I'm going to honor you. I mean, somebody from your line is, is going to um, be the king of the tribe of Judah. And so God is going to keep his promises, even though we we're going, I'm not sure how that is. The second thing we see is that God is always working for good. So, so, so in the lower story, we see all of the sin. We saw all this division. We see all this chaos. But in the upper story, God is still working all of this for good. Another king is coming from the tribe of Judah. And unlike David and unlike Solomon, when, when tempted in the flesh, he will not give in to temptation. He'll be the perfect Passover lamb that we studied in the book of Exodus. Another king is coming. Right? And this king who doesn't give in to earthly temptation will eventually crush the head of the great antagonist of this story, Satan, that we learned about in Genesis. So down here, it looks like disaster. Okay? But up here, God is still keeping his promises, and he is still working for good. He is still working for good. A king of Judah is coming. A king of Judah is coming. Now, most of our lessons, unfortunately, this morning will come from what we can learn from the lower story. There's four things I, I think are important that we can take away from this period in the life of Israel that we can learn, that we can apply to our own lives. And here's the first lesson. We need to be careful who we turn to for counsel. We need to be careful who we turn to for counsel. This is not how Rehoboam had imagined his coronation day, I imagine. Right? I mean, I mean, he grew up in the palace watching his father, the wisest man on the face of the planet. He watched the kingdom grow and wisdom and stature and wealth, and it became this, this world power. And now it is his time to inherit all of this. It's his coronation day. There's only one problem. The people didn't see Solomon's rule the same way the sun did. They're tired of the taxes. They're tired of the many building projects. And, and, and so uh, they, they come and, uh, and they complain. And those complaints are led up by a guy named Jeroboam. Okay, This is, this is somebody that the Lord has, has, has said, uh, I'm going to raise up. But, but he kind of wants it now. And, and so, uh, in fact, Jeroboam tried to take over 
rulership while Solomon was still alive, scholars believe. And Solomon tried to kill him, so he had to flee to Egypt. Now he's returning. Coronation Day, he's coming back. And, and Jer- so it, it's Rehoboam's day, but Jeroboam is showing up with the people to complain. This is not how the day is supposed to go. I mean, just try to put yourself there. You've finally gotten the thing you have always wanted, and it's not all it's cracked up to be. This is not how things are supposed to go. So Rehoboam, no doubt upset, seeks counsel. What should I do? And he turns to the royal advisors first, and he says, what should I do? I, I don't know what to do. My dad would have known what to do. And the royal advisors said, here's what you do. Humble yourself and serve them. Humble yourself and serve them. If you'll humble yourself and you'll serve them, they, 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 will, they will accept you as king. It'll happen. Think of this in his mind. Jeroboam is thinking, wait a second, a king who serves? That's ludicrous. Kings don't come to serve in his mind, he's thinking, yet we know where the upper story is heading, don't we? So he rejects godly counsel. He turns to his friends. Okay, listen, these old guys are telling me that I should humble myself and serve. Now, his friends kind of have a stake at this because their good buddy is now king. And if their good buddy humbles himself and serves, that's not what they were thinking they were going to get out of the deal. <laughs> no, 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 buddy, don't do that. This is your shot. This is, this is our moment, right? You use what you do. You stand up to them and you say, if you thought my father was tough, I tell you what. He wasn't even as tough and as pinky as I'm going to be to you guys. Now he listens, of course, to his friends instead of the royal advisors. They suggest grace. He says, no. They tell him what he wants to hear instead of what he needs to hear. And this is where we need to hit the pause button. This is where we need to hit the pause button in our lives. Have we not done the same? Are we not every bit as guilty as Rehoboam? Let me ask you this. We face a difficult decision. We face one that requires that we humble ourselves, that we submit to the authority of Scripture, one that calls us to be servants of God, one that calls us out of our comfort zone, one that may even ask us to take on and be the injured party. And what do we do? We seek a second opinion. We don't want to do what Scripture tells us to do. We don't want to listen to godly counsel that says that we should be hurt or we should forgive. Or we should let it go. We, we want counsel from somebody that's going to tell us something we want to hear. Somebody that's going to agree with us. Somebody that's going to tell us to follow our feelings. telling you today, it's time to stop it. Because true friends, godly counsel, a true friend doesn't tell you what you want to hear. They tell you what you need to hear. God doesn't usually tell us what we want to hear. When he instructs us how to live this life, when he instructs us how all of our relationships should be, when he tells us what we should do when people injure us and when they hurt us, when we face difficulties in life and, and more than anything else, we want prosperity. God gives 
us what we need to hear. At some point, we've got to submit to it. At some point, we've got to submit to it. We've got to learn from the mistakes of those that have gone before. First lesson, we need to be careful who we uh, turn to for counsel. Number two. I think the second thing we learn is this, that division is usually caused by multiple parties. Division is usually caused by multiple parties. Listen, the play on words was intentional, okay? I do this 50 weeks out of the year. I've tried division and multiple, okay? Right? Gets a little hard. Gets a little hard at times. Another way to say that simply might be to say this, is that uh, division is rarely one-sided. Division is rarely one-sided. You, you, you've heard the saying, it takes two to tango. Well, division is usually occurred. Uh, it usually occurs because two or more forces are involved. Now, at first glance, this all seems like it's Rehoboam's fault, right? If Rehoboam had just listened, he turns to godly advisors, he turns to the royal counselors, they give him great advice, they say, just, just humble yourself, submit, just serve them, and, and, and they'll love you, they'll, they'll, they'll serve you back, just, just submit. So at first, it seems like it is all Rehoboam's fault. If he would have just listened, right? Everything would have been fine. Here's what I want you to see this morning. There's always more than what we see. Right? Going on. Two other factors maybe you're not thinking about. Factor one, Solomon's disobedience. That's where it all began. Let's not put it all at Rehoboam's feet. Let's not all say that it's his fault. No, this began with his father, right? This began with his father who stopped applying the wisdom of God, who, who married 700 women and began to worship false gods. This is where it began. And God, God said, I'm displeased with you, Solomon. And I, as a form of punishment, am actually going to strip the kingdom away from your line. Not from you, but, but by the grace of God, my grace, because of David. I won't do it while you're alive, but I'm going to take it from your son. Right? So it's easy to look at this and say, well, this division that's caused the kingdom, I mean, being torn in two, if Rehoboam had just listened, it wouldn't be a problem. But you've got to understand, he's got his father as an example. There's another party involved, Jeroboam. God raises up Jeroboam and says, hey, you're going to be the next king, but you've got to wait. Now, what did David do when God anointed him king? He waited patiently for the Lord. He waited patiently for the Lord is what he did, right? And, 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 and that's what we find in, in, in Scripture as we study the life of David. He waited until God was completely done with Saul. He did not forcefully try to come and take the kingdom. Not so with Jeroboam. God says, Jeroboam, you're going to be king. Solomon is still alive. And Jeroboam says, okay, I'm going to be king now. Solomon says, no, you are not, and tries to kill him. He has to flee to Egypt. And now, coronation day comes, and, and, and Rehoboam is supposed to be, be, be named king. And now, suddenly, the people are coming with complaint about his father. And leading the charge is the guy Jeroboam that already tried to take the kingdom away. No wonder Rehoboam doesn't have any trust in what the people are saying. Do you see how complex the problem really is? It's not just about one guy refusing to listen to godly counsel. There's a lot more factors at play. And this principle is still true in our lives today. For instance, no matter what the court system may tell you, there is no such thing as a no-fault divorce, ever. Ever. 
There's a ruling long ago, no-fault divorce, you just go file for divorce. Nobody's at fault, it's fine. No, there's always people at fault. And you know, it, 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 there's always plenty of blame to go around. It goes around to both parties, the husband and the wife. It also goes to their parents. Don't believe me? Man, come have my job for a little bit and counsel with these people that are struggling. And you often find meddling parents in the background. Instead of parents saying, hey, listen, you've got to get this worked out. You've got to go to counseling. You've got to work this. They're taking sides. Well, that's my baby. How could they do that? That's my, that's my baby. How could you do that? And, and now we've got the Hatfields and the McCoys going on. And you've got Hatfield and McCoy pressure, and you're trying to do the hardest thing in life because Satan, more than anything else, wants to destroy marriage because it's a foundational institution of our society. And you've got the Hatfields and McCoys in your ears, all taking sides, saying this guy, this guy. So, so it's not just the parties, it's not just the husband and the wife that are to blame, but it's their parents too. And, and it goes further than that. It's also their friends' fault. Their friends have seen their marriage falling apart for years, but they never had the courage to step in and say what needed to be said. They sat there silent, watching the marriage fade away, watching the love be tarnished. And, and never once did they have the courage to actually be a loving neighbor, a loving friend, and step in and say, Oh my gosh, listen, we need to pray about this. I'm going to lift you up in prayer every single day, and I won't stop until I see a genuine change in your marriage. And, and hear me, the church is to blame too. Because aren't we supposed to be genuine and real when we walk through the doors of this building, when we gather in the name of Jesus? Aren't we supposed to be people committed to one another, to serving one another, to being real enough to get in one another's lives? Yet we just want to come and go through a ritual and get on home to watch a ball game. Division is usually caused by multiple sources. There's plenty of blame to go around. All of those things can be factors, and you may find yourself in a situation right now. You are so hurt, you just want to be done. You want to be done with a relationship. You want to be done with a job. You may want to be done after Thanksgiving with a whole side of the family. Let me just caution you with this. The grass is usually greener on the other side of the fence because it's full of manure that you can't see or smell yet. Rarely is division one person's fault. Rarely is it one-sided. Usually it is caused by multiple parties. All right? Number three. Tough lesson we learned this week. Ready? Division can affect generations. Division can affect generations. The division that occurs in our text between the southern and the northern kingdoms has generational consequences. It is the battle of the Hatfields and McCoys before there are any Hatfields and McCoys. <laughs> Long before they ever existed, follow me here. First Kings 14.30 says there was continual warfare between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. First Kings 15.6, now these are their kids. There was war between Abijah and Jeroboam throughout Abijah's lifetime. Let's go on to the next one. First Kings 15.16, there was war between Asa and Bashah, king of Israel, throughout um, their reigns. These kingdoms are going to remain at war. They're going to remain at odds with one another. And the consequences of that division are still going to be felt when Jesus shows up in this, on the scene. 
If you've got your timeline, look at how big of a period of time that is. You can just look at that. From where we are right now, from the end of Solomon's reign until when Jesus is born, until Jesus' public ministry. You look at how long a period of time that is, and yet the, the effects are still there. When Jesus stops and he talks to a Samaritan woman at a well, and the disciples are shocked. Why are they shocked? Well, they're shocked because one of Jeroboam's descendants decided that Samaria would be the capital of the northern kingdom. And, and, and so when you hear the, the Jews, when you hear the disciples from the southern kingdom that were born near Jerusalem coming and saying, how, how can we walk into Samaria? Right? How, how could we? It, it's Hatfields and McCoys. Say, wait, we can't just go into this, this place from these, these other people, the people on the other side of, of the tracks. We, it, it's still alive and active. Generations have passed. And it's still going on in Jesus' day. The divide runs deep. So I say this to you with love. Be very careful with your decisions. The divisions that you create can and will affect generations to come. Always do. Always do. We fail to see it. We're, we're, we're myopic. We're nearsighted. We just think about how we feel. Our world preaches to us that we're supposed to be happy, whatever that is. The Bible says, no, you're supposed to be filled with the joy of the Lord. Amen. Very big difference. Very big difference. Just need to be careful. Generational consequence, okay? Last one, number four. You hear those first three, I know what you're thinking. Like, come on, man, it's almost Christmas. Is there any hope in this? Yeah, there's hope. Here's our hope. Ready? Last point. God is the glue that holds us together and unifies us. God is the glue that holds us together and unifies us. Solomon said this in Psalm 127, uh, verse 1. He says, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Um, I like the way that Jesus puts it in Mark 3:25. He says, if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. That house cannot stand. I, I heard somebody say this week that the opposite of that statement is also true. A house united can withstand anything. A house united can withstand anything. So what unites a house like that? What, what, what holds a group of sinners together in spirit and in purpose, in, in love and in, in grace? What allows um, people that hurt one another to constantly forgive one another and be open-hearted and open-minded and open life to one another? What can do that kind of work with a people that are as stubborn as this? Only God is the answer. Only God can take people. I mean, I, mean, I mean, we can start at any foundation of life you want to start at. You want to start with marriage? Fine, start with marriage and Adam and Eve and two sinful people, right? I mean, I mean, marriage is about two sinners coming together and saying, I do. That's what it's about, right? And your children, God bless them. If, if your children are older than uh, like a month old, you know they are little sinners, Right? I mean, they just, they excel at it. And they're cute little sinners, by golly. Which makes it hard to discipline the cute little sinners. But someday, they're going to grow up to be 13-year-old sinners. And they're not as cute anymore. And they become 16-year-old sinners and 19-year-old sinners. And pretty soon, they're old enough to make their own decisions. And you realize, 
You've raised sinners just like you. What on earth can take people prone to sin, prone to hurt one another, prone to to neglect things that need attention? What what can take people that are me-focused and hold them together in perfect love and unity and give them the same vision and passion and direction in life? The answer is God. The answer is only God. Only God can do that. And this truth, uh, that's the truth about the one who is coming in the story, by the way. We talk about the upper story, the plan of God. Listen to what Paul says about Jesus, Colossians 1.17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Feel like your world is falling apart? Can I just tell you, there is a glue that is stronger than you could ever imagine. There is a glue that is stronger than you can ever imagine. So let's pack this up. Uh, I want you to take it home. I know uh, many of us have a rough week. We've got loved ones out that are sick. Some of you have kiddos that are, uh, come Wednesday, man. It's a half-day Wednesday, and then they are yours for three weeks. Hallelujah. Uh, and, uh, and that's coming. And so, Lord, I need, I need some homework this week to get me right. Um, here we go. I want you to take these truths home. Number one, uh, talk about taking the story home. I want to challenge you to surround yourself with true friends. Surround yourself with true friends. Um, true friends tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. You need to write that down somewhere. True friends. Okay. Now here's the deal. Our friends do not want to hurt our feelings. So some of you, you said, man, I have really good friends. They may be really good friends. They may be great friends. But your great friends love you so much, and you have never allowed them to be true friends. Okay? A great friend could not be a true friend because you haven't given them the permission to come in and to tell you what you need to hear. So some of you need to go this week and you need to call up those people that you consider great friends. We typically have one or two of those people. Some people may have three in their life. And you need to call those people and say, listen, I'm sorry. I haven't been the friend I need to be, uh, needed to be to you and, and I have not allowed you to be the friend that I need you to be. Right here and right now, I want to give you the permission. Will you speak truth into my life? Tell me what I need to hear, not just what I want to hear. Because I'm afraid, as we've been going through life lately, you've been just trying not to hurt my feelings. You've been trying to agree with me because no matter what happens in life, you want us to be okay. But I'm here to tell you, if my life crumbles and there's just us, you didn't do your job very well and you didn't love me. Let's not be selfish like that. Let's not care about our, our relationship and let everything else in my life crumble, Okay? I want you to love me enough to speak truth in my life. Please tell me what I need to hear, not just what I want to hear, okay? Number two, uh, I want to challenge some of you to stop placing blame and start accepting responsibility. Stop placing blame and start res- accepting responsibility. I told a friend um, recently, actually I've told a couple recently, um, stop trying to defend yourself. It's, it's one of the number one pieces of advice I give to somebody that comes to me for marriage counseling. Stop it. Stop trying to defend yourself. Stop it. Stop it. But, but she did this, and no, I didn't. She was like, I'm not. Stop. Stop it. Just own it. 
This is what I tell my kids constantly. It's not, it's not your teacher's fault you got a 60. It's not. Well, she didn't tell me this time I was doing that. I got 50. I don't stop it. Own it. Dad, I messed up. Cool, man. I mess up all the time. There's grace here. But just own it in life. Just don't stop. Don't make, don't, don't make excuses. Don't try to defend yourself. Just say, listen, I, I, I have plenty of fault in this, right? All division involves multiple parties. So listen, I own it. Own it. And don't just try to say like, well, I'm just going to own my part. And, and then so I'm going to confess my stuff, but then I'm going to point out your stuff until you confess. it. Never have remediation if that's what you do. Ever. You'll never have reconciliation if that's what you do. Ever. Just own it. Own it. Stop placing blame. Start accepting responsibility. Humble yourself. Rehoboam. If you will humble yourself, they will love you and serve you. Yes, but I'm, but I'm, I'm the head of the household. He was the king. I think he outranks you. Humble yourself. Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but I came to serve. To serve. Humble yourself. Stop placing blame. Number three, um, think before you act. Um, I use the word think on purpose because it involves your mind and not just your heart. Act is how we feel. Act, act, act. I don't, I don't feel. I don't feel loved. I don't feel cared for. I don't feel. I don't feel. I don't feel. Guess what? We live in a nation with overprescribed drugs that all deal with our feelings. Every food you intake in your body jacks with your feelings, right? The weather can affect your feelings. Go ask people that live where the sun only shows up every once in a while that they're depressed when it's like, like there's all kinds of factors in the world that will jack with your feelings. I can eat a lot of sugar and feel woo for like about an hour and then I'm going to, I'm going to feel terrible. Have you ever like noticed the moment you eat McDonald's? I'm not trying to pick on McDonald's, right? And we, we all, we all sin occasionally. Um, and, and the moment you, you eat it and you think, man, this, these are the best fries I've ever had. And like 40 minutes later, you are regretting life, right? Like, oh, what did I do? I just, I feel like I got the flu. What happened to me? That bonus fry in the bag got you. In life, we are driven by these things called feelings. And what I want to challenge you to do is, I want to, I want to, I'm going to say this, and I've, I've been, I think I've said it now three weeks in a row, the heart is deceitful above all else and beyond cure. Life is not about how you feel. So I want you to stop and think about the consequences of your actions. Divisions create generational consequences. It's not just about you. It's about your great-great-grandkids. Just let the gravity of that set for a second. It's not about you. It's about how your great-great-grandkids will respond because their father had to deal with his father who had to deal with you. Just think about that when you're struggling with your temper or not struggling with your temper, when you're struggling with your relationship with your spouse. Like these, are, these, are, these things have generational consequences. I know people... Um, I, let me tell you what I wouldn't do. Um, we think about vacations sometimes, right? I, I would never go bungee jumping without checking the safety record of the company. I would probably never go bungee jumping to start with, but I'm just telling you, if, if my wife said, no, we're going to do this, I'd be like, all right, but I'm pulling up 
I want to know the accident history of the whole company. I'd lie to you not. I'm just not going to do it, right? I, I know people that will not eat at a restaurant without checking Yelp. They just won't do it. But they will dive headlong into decisions and divisions that will affect generations because they don't feel right. It's like, what are we doing? Stop and think before you act, okay? Number four, this is really the key that wraps it all together. This is the bow this Christmas. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He is the glue. The root cause of division is a poor view of God. You might want to write that down. The root cause of division is a poor view of God. Solomon took his eyes off of God. Disastrous consequences, the same with Rehoboam, the same with Jeroboam. Please, 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 learn from their mistakes. Pray with me. Father, thank you for loving us enough to speak hard truths into our life, even when we don't necessarily want to hear them, because you know that we need to hear them. God, we love you. We love who you are. We love what you're doing in our midst. I pray this week, as we prepare our hearts to head out, that you would help us uh, just take these truths and apply them. That we would all leave this place and we'd actually pray about them. We wouldn't just file it away and say, oh, there's one more week of church, check, finished week 14. But we would actually go home and think on these things. We would pray to you about these things and you would speak to our hearts and change us from the inside out. Holy Spirit, do what you can only do in us this week. In Jesus' name we pray.